0: This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast, Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. The classical computing power has doubled every two years, a pattern known as Moore's Law. However, the ability to fabricate more and more transistors in a computer chip is saturating as we are approaching atomic dimensions. Quantum computing is a promising technology to take us beyond this. A quantum computer uses qubits to run multidimensional quantum algorithms. Quantum computers are faster and can solve problems that are beyond the reach of even the most powerful classical supercomputers. Dmitry Mazlov is the chief software architect at IBM's quantum computing division. He joins the show to discuss how quantum computing is different from classical computing, how to get started in this space, how would quantum computing impact current encryption standards. We also went through practical applications, quantum supremacy, and quantum algorithms. Dmitry, welcome to the show.
1: Yes. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me here.
2: Oh, yeah, it's really great to see you. You know, we met. Now, over 20 years ago, I was just a snot-nosed kid, desperate to talk to anyone about AI and quantum computing that would listen to me back then, and you were nice enough to take pity on me and spend some time answering my emails, so you know, I thank you for that. I think you're probably one of the smartest guys I know, so I'm very excited to have you on the show, but let's start by having you introduce yourself to the
1: listeners. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for the reminder. I distinctly recall you taking a class that I taught, and it's interesting that You asked me questions about quantum computing back in the days when I myself was not interested in quantum computing yet. It was, I believe, year 2001. And I became interested in quantum computing after that. And I recall not being able to answer your questions. And now 20 years down the road, I'm in a a far better position to actually accomplish that. All right, so for the audience, yes, my name is Dmitry Maslov. I work at IBM Quantum in the capacity of a quantum software architect and research staff member. And my primary areas of interest evolve around all things quantum circuits and quantum compiling, which is an area that studies ways to efficiently implement quantum algorithms on quantum computers.
2: So you mentioned that you weren't actually doing research and had in-depth understanding into quantum computing back when I asked you those questions. So can I take credit essentially for the career path that you uh, have now spent 20 years of your life dedicated to
1: as initially sparking that interest in quantum computing? I mean, with all due respect, I don't think I can give you that kind of credit, but I can explain how I came to work in quantum computing and perhaps maybe give an argument that I really had no choice but to work in quantum computing. The story starts with being a young kid, literally 10 to 12 years old. And in my experience, that in this world, you need to start thinking about what you would like to become in terms of your career early in life. And to illustrate this point, the question of what would you want to be when you grow up is not too uncommon to be heard in either school or coming from parents. And I personally distinctly recall that when I thought about what I wanted to do, back when I was, say, 10 to 12 years old, I gave it a thought and I realized that I would like to build computers. And the year was 1987 or so by then, and unfortunately, or so I thought, computers have already been built by then. So I felt I was completely out of luck and uh, needed to find something else to do with my life and career. Then, somewhere around year 2002, which is after 2001, when I believe you took the class that I taught. When I had interest in the classical computation in the ways of computing Boolean functions, think of it as a theory of computing, I stumbled on an area of reversible computation. And reversible computation is somewhat different from standard computation, but it is similar enough that it allows working on it without needing any further background. To clarify, reversible computation is same as usual computation, except you have to make sure that the output of a computation contains enough information about it to be able to reconstruct what the inputs were. So say boolean and is irreversible because if you know the output, say it's 0, then it is unclear what the two input values were. I mean, they could have been 0 and zero, zero and 1, or 1 and 0. So lots of options and you cannot choose the right one. And reversible computations, in turn, brought me to the area of quantum computing, since all quantum computations are inherently reversible. So in a nutshell, it's kind of the combination of the interest in computing and in the circuits and doing something novel that effectively brought me to the only place it could have brought me to.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: that's really interesting that you,
2: I think, you know, had this desire to build computers and then realize, well, you know, a lot of people have done that. So, and then you, you know, you sort of led yourself to reversible computing and then that led to quantum computing. And I think that's a good place to kind of jump off with, you know, kind of starting to dig into, you know, what is a quantum computing? I think when it comes to software engineering, in my experience, sometimes it's biased towards some types of engineering being considered sort of more hardcore than others, you know, backend sometimes is considered more hardcore than front end engineering, or you know, doing bit twiddling of a bootloader on an operating system requires more hardcore skills than something else. And personally, I think there's complex challenges in any area of engineering. You know, they require different skills. But I think I'm willing to accept that quantum computing might be the most sort of hardcore that you could possibly get. So just to kind of level set with the audience, because I think this is probably an area that most people have little to no personal experience with. What is quantum computing, and then how is it
1: different than conventional computing? Yeah, yeah. So I agree with you that we have to start with basics and discuss the basics first, and then maybe talk a little bit about the engineering. So first thing is first, to explain how a quantum computer is different from a conventional classical computer, let us first take a look at the conventional computers. So a conventional computer is your regular desktop, laptop, or phone. But that's not the key. The key... That I would like to highlight is that whichever device it is that you're using and calling a regular classical computer, it operates on the laws of Newtonian mechanics. So, this goes to say that all classical computers could have been purely mechanical, as in operating by the means of levers, gears, belts, and other mechanical objects. And the only reason why we have electronic as opposed to purely mechanical computers is because electronics can be made small reliably and because electronics is a lot faster at switching than mechanical computers. But the rest assured, your regular computer could be built with mechanical components and it obeys the laws of Newtonian mechanics. And this highlights the core difference between conventional and quantum computers. So quantum computers, in contrast, are based on the laws of quantum mechanics. Intuitively, this is the reason why quantum computers are different from and advantageous to classical computers. So let me explain. Different because Newtonian and quantum mechanics are different physical theories. Should the laws and formulas of one were possible to rewrite in terms of the other theory, they'd be one physical theory. But they're not, they have two different names. So they must be different, and indeed they are. In fact, so much so that the computational paradigms based on the two physical theories end up being different. So the second part is why quantum computations or quantum computers are advantageous to classical ones, but say, not the other way around. And this is easy to explain on an intuitive level as well. Say, quantum mechanics deals with tiny objects. and Quantum mechanics becomes Newtonian mechanics when objects become too large. This means that Newtonian mechanics is just poor quality quantum mechanics, if you want to think of it this way, and thus a classical computer is a poor quality quantum computer. Or think of it this way, say quantum mechanics underlies the construct of the world. This is how the world operates, on the very basic level, and thus its methods can be used and underlie the behavior and capabilities of all objects at a higher level of abstraction. And Newtonian mechanics is at a higher level of abstraction compared to quantum mechanics. So similar to object-oriented programming, I guess. And nature has to compile everything that it does down to the level of elementary transformations, and they're all quantum. So nature really speaks the quantum language. So. Let me further say that this explanation of the difference between classical and quantum computers there is some good and bad news, depending on how you choose to interpret, and the news is that it seems unlikely that there will be yet another computational model discovered soon, because we seem to be running out of physical theories to build the new kinds of computers on. There is, of course, the relativity theory to explore, but the hopes are dim if you're a single bit of information is of the size of a planet. I mean, you can do better than that. And the good news is that it seems as if a long time from now, we will only have two types of computers, regular computers and quantum computers. And it seems as if there is no room for yet another type of computer. And that's a good news because less to learn. Mm -hmm.
2: How does someone like get started in this space? Is this something that You need essentially like a physics background and a PhD to work in quantum computing today, because of where it is in terms of its history of development. is still you know very early days,
1: and there's a lot of sort of more research level work to be done. Right, right. So it's interesting that you ask this question because I understand this is for the benefit of the audience, and this is a great question at that. But let me clarify: Sean and I are actually co-authors. We wrote a paper about quantum computers in. The year 2008. And as far as I can tell, Sean didn't know quantum computing back then. He was a PhD student working on other topics. And my point is, and please correct me if I'm wrong or be the witness, it took you maybe a couple of hours, if even that, and I'm willing to bet it was under an hour to learn basic concepts of quantum computing to start working in a useful way on quantum computers. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Yeah, alright, and to further illustrate this point that I'm trying to make, let me say the following. Basically, in order to start working with quantum computers, you don't need much of a background. In fact, if you're a software engineer, you can learn concepts very quickly. I believe what you need to learn is the three things. One is the data structure, second is what kind of transformations are possible, And third, what constitutes the measurement? In other words, how do you extract the information from the data structure that you computed? So the data structure is unitary vectors in complex space of dimension 2 to the n. And that gets a little bit technical, but that's where kind of the quote-unquote complexity is. The transformations are unitary matrices of size 2 to the n by 2 to the n. So you multiply vectors by matrices, so it's all linear algebra. And your outputs need to be measured and measurements are probabilistic and projective. There is furthermore a straightforward formula that is easier to write than say, so I'm not going to say it. In any case, well, here you go. Once you know what the data structure is, what the transformations are in the measurement, you already know quantum computing.
2: Yeah, so it seems like even though fundamentally sort of the underlying construct of a quantum computing is different than a classical computer, Someone who's trained as a software engineer, there are transferable skill sets to move essentially from classical computing to quantum computing in a reasonable amount of time if this was something of interest to, to people
1: working in conventional software engineering. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And moreover, I would like to highlight that the knowledge of physics is not even necessary in my opinion. So what you need to know is a little bit of linear algebra and classical computation. And this is a good enough start to work in this area. So it's very easy. I mean, this world is 100% logical and obeys the various mathematical laws.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So if I'm in the picture, sort of
1: what a quantum computer looks
2: like, what does it actually look like? Is this anywhere familiar to
1: what, you know, classical computer looks like? Or are we talking about something that's like drastically different? All right. So this question, I guess, can be interpreted in various ways, but let me consider one possible interpretation literally what it looks like. If you look at it, what does it look like? And then to answer this question, I'd like to first mention that there are various technologies on which a quantum computer can be built. This includes two leading technologies being the superconducting circuits and trapped ions. And these are technologies that to date resulted in the construction of most capable, though still prototype, but universal programmable quantum computers. In other words, kinds of devices that can pass for a computational device. For superconducting circuits technologies, what you see from the outside is a dilution refrigerator. Think of it as a huge barrel, maybe the size of a human, roughly speaking. Once you take the outer protective shell down, inside you will see a set of layers looking like plates, brass-colored lots of brass wires between the various plates sitting at various levels. So from the outside, perhaps, it looks a little bit like a chandelier. And by the way, this is how experimentalists often refer to this structure. I mean, it literally looks like a chandelier. And quantum chip, it's an integrated circuit, and it sits on the lowest and coolest level of this chandelier. And the quantum chip itself is maybe of the size of 5 millimeters by 5 millimeters. So it's very tiny. Right, so this is superconducting circuit technology, in trapped ions technology, it looks different. So the computation is being done by ions suspended in free space. I mean, it's one possible model. So the ion chain itself is located in a vacuum chamber of the size of a let's say a basketball which sits on top of or near an optics table. An optics table in size is comparable to a pool table. And the quantum computer itself is a set of several or dozens, many ions of a particular species, say, ytterbium, which would be a setup that I'm most familiar with, that are suspended in free space in a vacuum chamber. And there are two tiny to see with a naked eye, although you can probably force them to emit enough light to be detectable by a naked human eye by shining lasers at those ions. And the reason you need the lasers and the reasons why this basketball size vacuum chamber sits on top of the optics table is because optics and lasers are used in order to induce the gates. In other words, to perform the transformations on this quantum computer that consists of ions. So it looks very different and other setups would look even very differently.
2: Right. So it sounds like, you know, if you think about like classical computing and like the history there, you know, original computers were the size of these, like essentially a room. And then, you know, we've gone a long way to now essentially walking around with the computer in our pockets. but. It sounds like with quantum computing, you know, in one model that you mentioned, you're dealing with like a human-sized drum, the chandelier type of setup. And then another one, you have something that's like the size of a pool table. So do you think that as this technology develops, the size of the actual physical quantum computer will continue to shrink the same way that it has with classical computing? Or is this just like, you know, an impossible thing to achieve using this type of technology?
1: Yeah, I think the size will likely shrink specifically as far as the optics table is concerned. I think a better way would be to package this optics table into an integrated photonic device, a photonic circuit. So it becomes a lot smaller by then. Maybe it becomes slightly bigger than the size of a regular desk. But it's kind of, in a sense, beyond the point, in the sense that I don't believe that this is necessarily important. And the reason for that is what quantum computers are good at, at the highest level, is solving the problems where the input is small, the output is small, but the computational space or the amount of computation that you need to do, say, classically, is large. And because of that, the communication cost in order to set the input and read the output is relatively low. Therefore, rather than carrying a quantum computer in your pocket, suppose we are ever able to create quantum computers this small, you may instead just wirelessly access a quantum computer that is sitting somewhere in the lab and get it to do the computation, and then you get the output, because both the input specification and the output are small. And modern networks will be able to efficiently communicate this amount of information. And the benefit of that is you never need to take care of the maintenance of a quantum computer. And the size of a quantum computer, in a sense, doesn't matter.
2: Yeah. I mean, even with conventional computing, we're essentially reaching that world where most of what we're doing is essentially interacting with computers over a network. And our laptops are really just a place to house our browser <laughs> that is then you know you're right. connecting with the greater world of the cloud. so you mentioned a little bit about what a quantum computer is good at. so what are specifically some examples of like a practical application that someone can kind of like understand the types of computation that quantum computing excels
1: at versus you know something like a classical computer? Right, so in terms of the practical applications kind of for the future, it may be difficult to tell because we do not yet have practically useful quantum computers, and the entire quantum computing area is furthermore relatively young, which is to suggest or give a hope that perhaps we're not yet well positioned to judge what the impact may be. So this said, I have my own preferences and views, beliefs if you will, And I believe that quantum computing would be most impactful in the fields related to materials research, chemistry, and I guess in a very long time, perhaps even drug design. And the reason is the core capability of quantum computing. In other words, what is quantum computing good at? And you don't even need to know or understand quantum computing very well to buy the following simple argument. And the argument is quantum computers are good at simulating quantum mechanics, which makes perfect sense. And somewhat less trivial is the notion that we do not know how to simulate quantum mechanics efficiently on a regular classical computer, but it turns out that we don't know. So if that is indeed the case, then you would think that quantum computers would be of interest in all areas where quantum mechanical computations need to be done in order to find the desired answer to a computational problem. And what are those? Suppose if you have a chemical compound, and you may use a quantum computer to compute whether it conducts electricity or does not by simulating the properties of that molecule. And what laws do the molecules obey? They are small, so that would be the laws of quantum mechanics. So that's why a quantum computer would be particularly efficient at computing the conductivity property of complex materials. And why is it useful? Well, it may offer a solution to the problem of finding room temperature superconductors. I'm not saying it will, I'm saying it may. And if that is indeed the case, why do we care about room temperature superconducting? Well, one of the reasons to care about that would be because power loss during the transmission and distribution of electricity to consumers, meaning the trip electricity takes between the power station and your home, is about a 10% loss. So you may say 10% is not much, but imagine everyone in the world getting a permanent discount of 10% on your electric bill in perpetuity. Suddenly, it doesn't seem all too insignificant. There are other examples of practical, likely applications of quantum computers. So let me mention a few more. For instance, developing better chemical reactions developing better batteries. And, I mean, what is a better battery? A better battery is one that has higher capacity, it charges faster, and it offers more recharging cycles. And quantum computers may help with all those. But there is even more to say about the batteries alone. And to explain, let's think about what's a battery. So battery is a storage of energy, not unlike a hand grenade. And I would say that the major difference between a battery and a hand grenade is how fast it releases the stored energy. And in particular, we don't want the battery to release the energy all too fast, and yet it can happen, and it is not something that we would like to happen. So to illustrate how it may happen, and not that I recommend that you verify what I'm saying, and I hope you trust me, but if you puncture a hole in a battery, a fire may erupt. And this is an example of a fast release of energy. And we obviously don't want our batteries to get set on fire. So where does quantum computer come helpful in terms of solving this problem? A sufficiently powerful quantum computer can predict by computing what reaction happens if the energy starts changing in the dynamic system set up by the combination of the various materials when you puncture the battery. And you can calculate how fast does the energy spread in the mix of various materials. And by doing this calculation, you would know if the battery is safe when damaged or it's not. So a quantum computer, other than helping to create a better battery in terms of the higher capacity, more recharging cycles, charging faster, can also help to create a safer battery. And this seems like an important enough topic.
2: Mhm. You know, I think one of the things that you hear a lot if you, you know, follow any news related to quantum computing, especially even mainstream things outside of like research publications is the relationship between quantum computing and encryption. And does essentially quantum computing make all sort of conventional encryption that we use today breakable because suddenly you can do things to compute in this very large space very, very quickly using a quantum computer.
1: Yeah, indeed, quantum computers make some of the standard cryptographic protocols, such as RSA and ECC, unsecure against a quantum attack. And this is because both RSA and ECC are the kinds of cryptographic protocols that are based on a belief of the computational difficulty of solving a certain problem. To be more specific, this problem is the discrete logarithm problem over certain kinds of abelian groups. And it turns out that this is precisely the kind of a problem that a quantum computer can solve well. Thus, the original premise of the difficulty that the security was based on no more holds in the presence of a quantum computer, which renders protocols such as RSA and ECC insecure. Well, now, Discrete logarithm over a billion groups is just one problem that you can base the security of a cryptographic protocol on. And there are other problems for which we believe a quantum computer will not be able to offer an efficient solution. For instance, consider the lattice shortest vector problem. The problem is as follows. Given a basis in a discrete lattice over some multidimensional space, find the shortest vector in that lattice and it appears to be a difficult problem to solve even for a quantum computer. We don't know for sure, much like we didn't know with RSA and ACC, but nobody was able to develop an efficient algorithm, and so, well, maybe there does not exist an efficient algorithm, either classical or quantum, to solve the problem of finding the lattice shortest vector problem. So, you can base the security on the assumption that this problem is difficult to solve and develop the respective public key encryption and key establishment algorithms based on this problem. In fact, recently, the National Institute of Standards and Technology NIST ran a competition to determine best post-quantum cryptographic algorithms and identified that those based on lattice shortest vector problem as the finalists. But does it mean in practice It most likely means that should the need arise to revise the cryptographic protocols used, such as RSA and ECC, then chances are the underlying encryption protocols will just change, and the user, as a user, you're unlikely to even notice this, because the secure communication will still happen, it's just that the underlying algorithms and underlying software will be different, which will be fixed with... A patch that will install itself—I don't know—in maybe minutes at most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the effect on the encryption and cryptography. Yeah, that is
2: comforting as someone like myself who works in the security and privacy space. Mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned, there's for something like you know conventional RSA, ECC, the way that they're set up is something that, in theory, quantum computing can essentially make mute in terms of being able to break those encryption algorithms. But given that we understand that, why is there so much research about like proving quantum advantage? Isn't it clear that for certain types of problems, there is an advantage for quantum computers versus regular classic computers? Like why is this a debate in the research world?
1: I mean, it's both clear and unclear, as far as the clear part is concerned, there is the so-called Bell's Inequality, or CHSH game, if you will. It's Let me formulate what it is. It's a cooperative game where the two players, Alice and Bob, are given two random Boolean inputs, S and T. And they're required to come up with the bits A and B, respectively, and using no communication, such that The Boolean product of S and T equals to exclusive OR of A and B. And to quickly remind exclusive OR of A and B, think of it as modulo 2 addition. In other words, it's equal to zero if both A and B are equal to either zero or one. And it's equal to one if a equals zero, b equals one, or a equals one and b equals zero. And this exhausts all the possibilities. So this game can be won if both Alice and Bob have a quantum computer, like in quotes, quantum computer, more precisely if they share parts of an entangled state. And this is a very constrained type of advantage, but it is a demonstrable uh, type of advantage. And in fact, as of a few days ago, there was an announcement of new Nobel laureates in physics, and the Nobel Prize was issued in part for the discovery and the formulation of the CHSH game that I described, right? So it's not that you would like to play this game as a a person, but it is a game that allows, that can be won if you have a quote-unquote quantum computer. You literally need a very simple state. It's not a full-fledged quantum computer. So, meaning a quantum computation, minimal quantum computation, already allows you to win this game. But, like I said, there are more examples, and let me say what those examples are. Say, let's consider a computational problem with black boxes. And suppose your task is to learn some property of a black box. And for certain kinds of problems of this kind, a quantum computer with quantum black boxes can learn those properties faster than a classical computer and provably faster but then many of those algorithms black box algorithms are not very practical so you can ask an even harder question Say you can say that let's look at the white box computations which is what one may normally think of when they think about the computing and then formally speaking Within that model of computation, which is a completely unrestricted model of computation, we do not know if quantum computing is better, which is don't. But then we also don't know if P equals NP. In other words, if the computational complexity of finding a solution and verifying it are of the same complexity or not. So this said, there is plenty of circumstantial evidence that both quantum computations are better than classical computations and that P is not equal to NP. But like I said, formally, we don't have an explicit proof. I see, yeah. And then
2: there's obviously, oh, well, maybe not obviously, but there is this perceived sort of performance advantage of quantum computing, at least for specific class of problems over a classical computer. Are there other potential drivers for adoption, like greater energy efficiency or something like that?
1: I can't think of the greater energy efficiency advantage. In a sense, a greater energy efficiency advantage may come twofold. One, as a result of different asymptotic complexities for solving certain problems. And suppose if it takes exponential effort to solve a problem on a classical computer and only polynomial effort to solve on a quantum computer, then at a certain size of the input, a quantum computer will be a lot more efficient energy-wise, independently of the energy cost per a unit of computation, just because exponent will eventually overtake any polynomial. So that's one possible answer. A second answer is, well, technically speaking, a quantum computer is reversible, and due to the reversibility, it does not lose the energy due to the loss of information. So there is a physics principle that when you lose a single bit of information, it costs you some energy. So there may be some advantage coming from that principle, but of course, not as as big as the advantage coming from the different asymptotic complexities of the algorithms responsible for solving different problems. So other than energy, there is a potential computational advantage that comes from having to use less space. Say, consider the following problem. Say, your input is a read-only memory, much like a CD-ROM, for those who are old enough to remember those. And suppose you have this memory and you only have a single bit of memory that you can actually remember and rewrite. And here is the question. Can you compute the majority of three bits? quickly remind the majority function of 3 bits equals 1 when majority of the inputs are 1. In other words if 2 or 3 inputs are equal to 1 then it outputs 1 and if 0 or 1 inputs are equal to 1 then it outputs 0. And suppose in this computational model you can only use standard two-input single-output gates. And the question is, can you compute the value of this function if you have only a single bit of memory that you can write over? The answer is, classically, you cannot, because there is not enough memory to accomplish this task. And let me try to convince you that this is the case. So, indeed, consider the computation of majority for two bits. And then you, you compute majority for two bits, and then you add the information on the third bit in order to, uh, to compute your final answer. So what do you need to know about the first two bits in order to be able to compute the majority function? Well, you need to, to know three distinct pieces of information. You need to know if the two, first two bits reside in the states 0 and 0, because then it is guaranteed them that the output of the majority is 0, That's one case that you need to distinguish. The second case that you need to distinguish is if both bits are ones, because then majority is guaranteed to compute the one independently on the value of the third bit. And the third scenario is the first two bits contain values 0, 1, or 1, 0. And then the answer depends on the third bit. In other words, you need to remember three pieces of information. And a single bit does not offer you this opportunity, because a bit can only store two pieces of information. However, if you look at the quantum bit, then it turns out that a quantum bit can be made to store more than two values simultaneously. And as a result, a quantum computer with only a single quantum bit of memory is able to compute the majority of three bits, and this shows that quantum memory is more powerful than classical memory, as it can store more things. Moreover this is not just theory, as this behavior was explicitly demonstrated in an experiment, a quantum computational experiment. So there is slightly more depth to this kind of experiment, and I'm trying to illustrate something about quantum computation here. So. According to Halova's theorem, the amount of information that you can learn about an n-qubit quantum state is limited by n bits. So you cannot learn more than a single bit of information from a quantum bit. However, the ability to compute majority using one bit of memory means that, in effect, so long as you do not look at your memory, it contains more information than it does once you look at it that may not make very much sense, but it's true. It furthermore highlights an important principle of quantum computing that makes it so difficult, and it is that not everything that doesn't make sense is untrue. In other words, there are things that don't make sense, but they're true, which by itself kind of makes sense. And this is because your intuition is based on common sense, right? your common sense is based on your daily experiences. And all of your daily experiences are Newtonian mechanical. So if quantum mechanics doesn't make sense, this is good. Because if it did make sense, it would be called Newtonian mechanics, and it's, and it's not. So I hope you're with me on that argument.
2: Yeah, I think everything gets a little wacky when you start to dig into quantum mechanics. And I agree, I think that if you think that you understand it and it makes sense then you might actually be misleading yourself and and not actually know enough about it to realize that you don't understand it and it doesn't necessarily make sense. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, one of the sort of results that made headline news in the last couple of years, which was in 2019, Google claimed that they had achieved, you know, quantum supremacy. And I I believe their results have actually since been passed
1: by a regular supercomputer. But what was it that Google claimed to have achieved at that time? They claim to have achieved the su- supremacy, as you mentioned, and supremacy, as originally defined by Preskill in his twenty twelve paper, I have a quote here in front of me, so I will I will read the quote, and this is the entire sentence and it goes as follows We therefore hope to hasten the onset of the era of quantum supremacy when we will be able to perform tasks with controlled quantum systems going beyond what can be achieved with ordinary digital computers. Yeah, so that was the Google's claim, to have achieved the supremacy.
2: Mm -hmm. And you and your colleagues at IBM had cast on that achievement at the time. Why was it that you had written and and come out publicly that they
1: challenged essentially the claim of quantum supremacy from Google? Right, because we didn't believe that Google reached the supremacy in terms of its original definition, or even supremacy in a weaker sense. Let me clarify. So basically what happened is IBM demonstrated that Google's computational experiment, which is an excellent experiment, it's, it's indeed very interesting, but it can be simulated classically in two and a half days. However, Google claimed that their experiment can be simulated classically. If you wanted to simulate it classically, then the classical computation would take 10,000 years. And the difference between the 10,000 years estimate and two and a half days estimate that made, I guess, such a big difference in the IBM's eyes. And moreover, I believe that by the time that Google wrote the paper, it could have been figured out that it's possible to perform a simulation in just seven days. So I guess the IBM's contribution was reducing seven days to two and a, two and a half days, which is roughly a factor of three improvement. But even discarding like the IBM's improvement, there was a, a simulation that Google could have referred to, which would only take seven days on the largest known classical computer that would simulate their quantum experiment. But this said, quantum experiment took uh, far less than... I believe it took only a few minutes. So there is still some sort of weak supremacy, but not as stated in the paper. And that was the part that was criticized.
2: Right. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. There's a substantial difference between 10,000 years and uh, you know, seven days or even you know, two and a half days. So One of the areas of research that you mentioned that you're interested in is quantum compilation. You know, What is a quantum compiler? if I'm
1: to kind of try to think about that and put it in terms of, you know, maybe conventional engineering. Right, so you can think of it in terms of a set of software tools that translate the algorithm of interest into machine executable code, if you're willing to think of it this way, or you can think of it as a set of methods, approaches, and techniques to express quantum algorithms as short circuits directly executable on quantum computers. However you look at it, the key of compiling is much like classical compiling. The key in quantum compiling is to express a quantum algorithm of interest using the smallest number of computational resources, whichever those resources are. It can be the number of gates, can be the circuit depth, can be the number of qubits used, and so forth. I see. In in terms of expressing
2: a quantum algorithm, how does someone do that? Is that are they essentially creating a quantum program that consists purely of like laying out gates or are there abstractions in terms of like programming languages for designing a quantum
1: algorithm? A few levels of abstractions that I can think of in the sense that a one level of abstraction can be the one where you think of a computation in terms of the elementary gates, such as the CNOT gate, which is controlled NOT gate, an analog of a classical Modulo 2 addition of uh, Boolean numbers, or you can think of quantum algorithms in terms of the higher level objects such as, for instance, integer adders, multipliers, the quantum Fourier transform, or other sorts of specialized transforms. But this said, the number of those logical layers, the different layers, is very small. And this goes to illustrate two points. One, quantum computation is in a sense, in its infancy, we don't yet have very complex to express quantum algorithms that require you to have multiple maybe internal representations or very complex software. In fact, all the algorithms, quantum algorithms that I can think of can be expressed in terms of quantum programming languages using maybe a page or two of text. And now that I'm thinking about it, I frankly, I haven't seen an algorithm that needs two pages of text to be expressed as a quantum program. I think I've seen only those expressible in a single page of text, but uh, let's say a few pages.
2: Yeah, so pretty pretty small. amount. Yes, very small, thing. very short. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what are some of the like major challenges that people are working on in quantum computing today? And I guess like looking back on You've been in this space for 20 years. What are some of the major breakthroughs that have happened during your time working in quantum computing?
1: I would say the major challenge in a single word is fidelity, as in gate fidelity, which is the same as saying reliability of of quantum gates. It's a huge challenge in the sense that if you give me a quantum computer with the gate fidelity of one that is absolutely perfect gates, then... It would be useful today in order to solve practical problems because we have enough qubits. We just need the gate fidelity to be higher. And improving the gate fidelity is notoriously difficult. So that has to do with essentially quantum noise, is
2: that right? Yes, with noise. Yes, correct. So why is there so much noise that happens inside
1: uh, you know, the computation of a quantum computer? Well, noise in quantum computations is nothing other than the result of the interaction that you have with your quantum computer or the interaction of a quantum computer with the environment. And you may say, let's completely remove it, as in, let's perfectly isolate a quantum computer from the environment. And let me say that, sure, you could do that, but then your quantum computer would be perfectly isolated from your ability to program it. And every time that you want to program, it and run computations on it, you need to talk to it. And this means interact with it. And it's the process of the interaction with the quantum computer that introduces the noise. I see. So I guess sort of looking ahead
2: to the next five to 10 years, where do you think quantum computing is going? Is this something that, you know, is this problem something that is going to be, you feel would actually you know, we're going to make essentially significant improvements to in the next five to 10 years? Like, What do you think is from 10 years from now we'll be talking about in the quantum computing world? Uh,
1: frankly, I have no idea. What I can say is when I joined IBM, which was in the year 2019, I came to IBM from the National Science Foundation where I was a program director and I had a tenured government job. So I gave up my tenured job And this tenure job was outside the quantum computing industry in favor of a non tenure job in quantum computing. And I guess my time horizon back then, and now as well, is five years in the sense that it has my belief, supported by personal action, not just words, and remaining to be the case to date, that five years down the road, quantum computing will still be here and will still be important. And hopefully it will be more advanced. How much more so? I have no idea, but my own career depends on the answer, so I wish I knew the answer. In some ways, it's probably exciting
2: to work in a space where you don't know the answer, though, because you know you didn't spend all your time sort of building up expertise and dedicating you know, your career to the space to necessarily know everything uh, from day one. It's you know it's the the journey and exploration that you're probably excited by. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Demetri, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to see you after all this time. I appreciate you taking the time to share your knowledge and expertise with the Software Daily listeners. I, and I think you know this is a topic that comes up in the news all the time and sort of mainstream media. I think it's really interesting to kind of dig in and really dive into the details of you know what's going on in this world beyond just sort of, the, sort of sensational headlines that you might see in your, in your news feed. So thanks so much.
1: Yeah, there is one more note that I would like to add, maybe concerning the discussion about the noise that I uh, kind of struggled to answer a little bit at first. Let me explain why quantum computers are difficult to build and difficult much more so than classical computers. So imagine I ask you to build a one-bit classical computer. And what you could do is take a coin called the hat zero and tails one, put it flat on the table, and flip it by hand to perform 1-bit computations. So there's your entire 1-bit classical computer, easy. And a quantum 1-qubit computer is exactly the same, but you're now the size of a planet. And this is a fair comparison because the relation between the sizes of a human to an elementary particle is comparable to the relation of the size of a planet to a coin. And now imagine the kinds of problems you will have while operating a coin if you are the size of the planet. Some of those may include not being able to even see the coin for it being too small to see. Then maybe squishing it into the table, which it lies on, along with the table and the house the table is in, and possibly the entire city the house is in. And also if you're the size of the planet and barely touch the planet the coin is on, the seismic wave can flip the coin or throw it out from the table. And this introduces an error to your computation. And these are precisely the kinds of problems that one has to deal with while building quantum computers. But I think those problems can be solved eventually because solving them does not fundamentally contradict the laws of physics as we know them. So the question is most likely that of time as opposed to the possibility.
2: Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I think this is, even though you've you know spent 20 years working in this space, there's still so much to, it's such a rich space, like it's very, very much early days and sort of just scratching the surface of what can be done. So I think this is, I'm glad that you kind of stopped down to, to share this analogy. I think it's the perfect analogy to kind of really articulate the size of the problems, you know, the planet size problems that people have to
1: try to figure out in the, the quantum computing world. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me here.